1: Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello, fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers
0: at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to bluenile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at bluenile.com for $50 off. bluenile.com code LISTEN. Warmt welkommen till Epic Lifestyle podden. Det här är podden för dig som vill leva i ditt bästa jag. Sofie Resare heter jag och är holistisk lifestyle coach på företaget Epic Living Sweden. Den här veckan så är jag verkligen utanför min komfortzon. För jag gör en intervju på engelska med en forskare från USA. Och den jag pratar med är professor Daniel I Martin som är knuten till Stanford University. Och hans huvudspår är compassion och well-being så då övertog min nyfikenhet, mitt förstånd helt enkelt så att jag fick kontakt med honom och fick ett väldigt långt samtal som var otroligt givande. Jag har delat upp den här intervjun i fyra delar faktiskt för att jag fick in jättemånga frågor från er som lyssnar och mitt nätverk och då har jag delat upp varje fråga i ett avsnitt så du kommer flera avsnitt löpande här framöver. Daniel då, eller Dan, han jobbade i början av sin karriär I, inom high school i utsatta områden och men han såg att han ville göra mer för att kunna skapa hållbara lösningar, bland annat för personer då som ja, bor lite utsatt och behöver mer stöd. Så då gav han sig på att skaffa sig en PhD och började med forskningen sen och eh, bland annat vad han säger också är att man, man ser en minskning av empati i USA och säkert eh, övriga världen också och det är framförallt bland unga och eh, det är ju vår framtid och även våra nya kollegor så att eh, han ville verkligen gå in och göra skillnad där I den här första delen som vi lyssnar på idag så är det Anna Mattsson som har skickat in en fråga. Och Anna undrar hur hur ser forskningen kring runt psykologi och digitaliseringen? Och vad är resultaten hittills som man ser av den forskningen? Och bland annat det som Dan säger är ju att tekniken skapar jämlikhet mellan individer. Man kan... Man kan göra mätningar på ett annat sätt än vad man kunde innan. För tidigare så kanske man gick på att den och den har gått på ett särskilt universitet, college. Och det väger då tyngre än något okänt. Men tekniken gör att man blir mer jämlik. Den jobbar ju med ett digitalt program då. Och det har han jobbat fram tillsammans med Jutam Heinerberg Som jag också har intervjuat som kommer längre fram. Och det är ett åtta veckors digitalt program. Där man tränar Compassion och statistiken visar att det minskar stress och det minskar ångest och det minskar depression när man jobbar med Compassion och även när man använder det i digitala program. Så att teknik och forskning går hand i hand där. Jag hoppas verkligen att du ska uppskatta intervjun som jag gjorde med Dan. Och tycker du att han pratar fort så går du att trycka på Spela halvfart i din podcaster-app. Annars får du lyssna flera gånger. Men nu går vi över och lyssnar på Dan. Hello Dan, how nice to see you. It's great to see you Sophie. (laughs) Thank you. I'm very honored to, to have this possibility to talk to you today and about compassion and yeah. (laughs) <laughs> oh, absolutely.
2: Thank you so much. It's my uh, pleasure. And I thank you for the opportunity.
0: Thank you. Thank you. First of all, please tell us a little bit about you, your background and your research.
2: Sure. Um, so I'll try to keep it really short uh, because I'm so old, I tell you.
0: Um,
2: I uh, first started becoming interested in psychology a long time ago when I started understanding that uh, inequality in society led to all kinds of interesting dilemmas uh, that affected people, not only at the individual level, but at the social level. So after pursuing an undergraduate degree in clinical psychology at uh, San Francisco State, uh, I I taught for a while and I helped uh, low socioeconomic status students. Uh, in high school, but I realized that, you know, just working with students outside of their home environment uh, and then having them return to their home environment or kind of a dysfunctional environment uh, wasn't really going anywhere because you could help people a little bit, but then they would revert uh, back into some of their their troubles. Uh, I decided that I would pursue a a PhD in social psychology. Um, So uh, I decided to pursue My degree is at Howard University, uh, which is in Washington, D.C. It's a historically black college. Uh, And my emphasis was racism and prejudice, which extends to in-group, out-group dynamics and all the horrible things that we end up doing to each other because of these things. Now, the interesting thing about this stuff is that uh, many of these concepts and many of these circumstances um, are are natural for our species. So... uh, As I was pursuing this, I worked for the military, I worked for the U.S. Army Research Institute for Behavioral and Social Sciences on unit cohesion and uh, assessment. And then I worked for the the Human Resources Office of the U.S. government, called the Office of Personnel Management as a personnel psychologist. So um, moving forward quickly, I had always been teaching. I started teaching in Mexico when I was about 18 years old. And when I was finished with my PhD, I thought to myself, hey, I'm done with research. I would started a company a couple of years before, which was more successful than I thought. And uh, I wanted to move back to California from Washington, D.C. Stay away from politicians. That's what I would say. Um, but the important thing about that is that I still love teaching. And uh, I was teaching two classes. And one of the universities said, hey, you should uh, apply for a full-time position. So I did. So I'm an associate professor, tenured at Kelsey Cal State East Bay. While I was at Kelsey East Bay, my research, some of my um, interventions got the attention of the medical school over at Stanford University, which is across San Francisco Bay. Please do come and visit everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I was a visiting faculty member at the medical school in the Center for Compassion, Altruism Research and Education for three years. I still work with them as consulting scientists. I'm also the Director of Research for the Charter for Compassion uh, which is a international NGO that aims to, in a non-denominational, uh, non-religious, and very secular way, increase people's capacity to experience and to uh, give compassion to others themselves, as well as to, of course, receive it, uh, which is an important missing part that we never talk about. So, mm. so that's me uh, up to this point today. I love Sweden. It's a beautiful country. I'm lucky to have many friends there uh, who are extremely compassionate people. So. <laughs>
0: I hope that helps. <laughs> yeah, sounds great. Uh, and how uh, how is your connection to Sweden? Because I know you work with uh, Ulf uh, Alexandersson at uh, Sprint. And uh, how did you meet? It's so funny. I think uh, Ulf from from Falun here in Sweden, and then you and <laughs> you work together.
2: Yeah, um, one day I think this was about 2012. Uh, my colleagues uh, at, at our office at Stanford let me know that I had a phone call from Sweden. And I thought to myself, I don't know anyone from Sweden. Uh, I know, regretfully, all Americans know Ikea. I think that's, and and I, you know, my mom had a Vovo. That's about all I know uh, or knew about Sweden besides the Psalms. Um, so I talked to Ulf, and he said, look, you know, I, he's been doing working compassion and human resources and i said who are you you must be a spy because nobody actually pays attention to this stuff um but he wasn't a spy uh he's a great guy he's become a very close friend and he's just a wonderful man uh, more importantly he's quite a visionary and as we started really talking about the theoretical uh, underpinnings of how compassion relates to human resources management um, he was one of the first people to really appreciate um, what we could do uh, in terms of mm-hmm. interventions because Sophie one thing that's uh, a challenge about working in business and in academia is that ideas are usually just that and they in the clouds and people sometimes read academic papers if they run out of sleeping medicine or (laughs) it's boring stuff so the question becomes how do we take this important material that people have really worked hard on and use it to make a difference in people's lives in organizations uh, capacities in the environment in terms of sustainability as well as uh, you know setting free tools that interestingly enough we already have um, but oftentimes have uh, lost the keys to uh, by virtue of ideology, by virtue of a trauma that occurs to us over the course of our lives or uh, pursuit of dreams that maybe uh, aren't ours, but we've been kind of led to believe that they are ours. Um, so happy to talk about this stuff, but, but Ulf, uh, Ulf gets it. He got it. Uh, he's a great guy and we've had so much fun, uh, bringing these ideas to back down to earth, I think. And now we're really just starting to see how how wonderful and how applicable this stuff is, meaning compassion and and well-being uh, are to people in so many different places, Sweden, Mm -hmm. Mexico, Argentina, Japan, um, Poland, the United States, which desperately needs it at this stage. Uh, (laughs) But that's, that's how I know old. And uh, his family is wonderful, and uh, my my daughters adore him, and Sweden
0: as well. Yeah, good. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, uh, compassion is really needed in yeah everywhere, and especially in the business life as it is right now. You know, in high speed.
2: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile.
0: With the price of just about
2: everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
0: And, uh, you know, I have got uh, uh, quite a few questions from my network to you. We will try to, um, perhaps you can't uh, take them all, but uh, some of them at least. Okay. Yeah. Are you ready?
2: Absolutely.
0: (laughs) Great. Uh, The first one is from um, Anna Mm Matson. And she wonders, how does research around psychology and digitizing look like and what are the results so far
2: yeah so this is a really broad field and you're seeing psychological research meet uh technology in a lot of different places so you know i I can give you a broad range answer and then i can go into the work that we're doing if that's okay Yeah. Um, so you know there's a lot of people who are doing work in uh you know trying to reach uh, maybe younger generations right now. So we've seen huge uh, decrease in empathy in younger folks, at least in research in the United States. And this is to a certain extent, really troubling because when we think about uh, the future for both young people, as well as for more seasoned professionals like me, um, these are the people we're going to be hiring and these are the people we're going to be working with. Now, I'm not a person who will throw out uh, the baby with the bathwater. I think that um, technology is absolutely critical uh, for our well-being, but not to the exclusion of our own natural technology, which has evolved over the course of you know hundreds of thousands of years uh, and more, if we want to include our friends, the mammals, <laughs> you know, who we're coming from and beyond. The thing is, is um, There's a lot of research that's being done right now to try to assist people with stress, uh, anxiety, via uh, text-based interventions, which is interesting. Somebody feels stressed out, worried, they text a coach. Usually in the United States, you wouldn't call this person a psychologist, even though they might be a psychologist, because of liability and legal issues. Um, But this is a movement that's growing in Japan. This is a movement that's growing in a lot of different places, because people oftentimes would much rather, at first at least, contact people via uh, text-based kind of interventions. There's email-based empathy interventions, which have been quite successful, just reminding people to uh, kind of give some consideration to how they could be more empathic throughout their day and throughout their week. Um, There's a lot of movement towards video games, where (laughs) video games have gotten so good, you can try to understand an alien's emotional status based on its facial uh, gestures. So (laughs) they're inviting people to crash land on another planet that you don't speak the language of the aliens and try to make sense of how these aliens are feeling based on their expressions. So a lot of interesting things happening. There's some work in virtual reality, uh, trying to help people uh, deal with stress of interacting with other people. Um, The work that, that Ulf and I and a host of colleagues, absolutely brilliant people like Tom Heineberg, uh, Phil Zimbardo, very famous for the Stanford Prison Experiment, uh, Fred Luskin, who's very well known for the Stanford Forgiveness Project. We're working using the platform that Ulf was talking about, the Bright City platform, to give people some safe psychological distance to interact with each other. So it's really interesting, Um, on one hand, We want to give people the opportunity to acquire skills that traditionally we've done in classrooms. But with the pace of life, uh, with the costs associated with training, with the logistical challenges of bringing people together, um, we found that technology to a certain extent has caught up to some of the classic work that we used to do in terms of T groups or sensitivity groups using uh, structured Experiential models, adult learning models, psychoeducational models. So, what does this all mean? Uh, this means that we're giving people a really brief opportunity to understand the scientific literature in uh, in layman's terms, in common terms, so it's not too difficult to understand. And then we're letting them communicate with each other using protocols that are written by social psychologists like me, clinical psychologists like my dear friend Yo Tom, uh, to really give them high quality opportunities to optimize without a teacher when it's convenient for them, and still appreciate other people's expressive and emotive capabilities. So on one hand, it's safe because you're not actually in front of the person, but at the same time, you're still benefiting from the human interaction that people crave so desperately, which is why they're on Facebook all the time, or, you know, these various social platforms, liking, you know, hey, look at my fika, hefted (laughs) right so the thing is is oftentimes we we strongly crave that we don't have the opportunity to develop real relationships so i'll share a little bit of of our research um schools uh, universities businesses have a strong need to show evidence for the efficacy of any training they do i work for universities And we're accredited by a variety of different bodies. And the accreditations are incredibly subjective. Uh, They don't measure what we're trying to train people. But then neither do faculty members. Um, So it's this really interesting thing. I have a PhD. Wow, big guy, right? But if you tried to drill into that PhD, you couldn't really say what I know. You just have to trust the three magical letters after my name. And that's not the greatest thing in the world for a bunch of different reasons. One, um, I know a lot of people with PhDs who are dumb. (laughs) And I say that with love (laughs) because I think I'm one of them. The point is, is that all a PhD reflects is your capacity to stick it out and to pay for a degree. It doesn't show you how bright this person is in terms of statistics in terms of theorizing, in terms of research methodology, in terms of, uh, you know, ability to create and derive new approaches towards helping people. So my thinking is, why don't we give people those insights? I also, my PhD is social and industrial organizational psychology, so I also have a deep interest in understanding jobs and work in a very granular fashion. So. I can give you a job analysis of, of a lot of different positions. In the United States, the government provides about 925 standardized um, job analyses that provide you all the knowledge, skills and abilities of those positions, along with the technology, the compensation, uh, and a variety of values that are associated with people who like to work in those positions. So if I have that information, I can measure people's capacity when they start our programs, and then when they're finished with our programs, very simple return on investment kind of metric pre post test, but it's far more impactful than anything that's been used in uh, universities. It's better than the majority of things that are happening in business right now because we're using job related competencies as well as well-being competencies and I think most importantly from a societal perspective Sophie, um you know I'm associated with Stanford University and I'm blessed to be associated with Stanford but if I have a student who's way smarter from let's say the Stockholm School of Economics or you know a, a gymnasium mm-hmm. in uh you know, I wouldn't be able to compare them. I would just go with a Stanford student because they'd say, oh, it's a great brand name. But if you're measuring job-related competencies at a normed level in a psychometric fashion, you're going to give the job to the right person. And suddenly, it will be a lot more equitable in terms of your job selection. So in the United States, we have significant problems with inequality. So while it may seem like we're working with people in compassion at a very individual level actually when you scale this up you're able to see oh we're really doing everybody a favor by being much more granular much more specific in what we're looking for because we're not going to prevent people from success just based on their brand name does that make sense
0: yes definitely so interesting (laughs) it's great
2: (laughs) (laughs) cool thank you (laughs) thank you (laughs) what is that's that's our research. Let me give you some specific outcomes. Um, so uh, we've been running the compassion skills training for about a good two years now, and you know I I, I was I was going to write the first version of this for the platform I developed. And then my good friend, uh, like my brother, he's not even a friend anymore, uh, Yotam Heineberg, Dr. Heineberg, uh, I said, hey, do you want to work on this? And he created this incredibly insightful and beautiful program that goes through eight weeks of compassion development. And uh, suffice to say, it's just an hour a week, and we've been able to statistically significantly increase people's compassion for others, We've been able to statistically decrease their fears of receiving compassion from others. But most, second most importantly, we've been able to increase their leadership skills. Now, this is really important because these are the very tools that are being used by recruiters to hire managers. We've also been able to statistically significantly increase their service orientation. So any job where you're working with human beings requires your capacity to understand and appreciate other people's needs. Mm-hmm. And in our definition of compassion, which is uh, understanding that someone is you know, suffering and then having an empathic response, but then taking action to do that, that's the definition of customer service. That's the definition of a good medical doctor or a nurse. That's the definition of, of sales people. So it's interesting when you start really thinking about these definitions from a behavioral perspective, because they cease to be these kind of ephemeral or cloudy concepts, and they become quite behavioral. You can see when someone's compassionate, when they take action to ameliorate somebody else's suffering or their own. Mm. So besides those, now this is the most important thing. (laughs) And I'm sorry, you know, I do this for a living, so I talk So as I always tell people, I'm glad this is a podcast because you can rewind things or slow my voice down. (laughs) Um, We've been able to statistically significantly decrease stress, anxiety, and depression. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know about Sweden. I do know that you know um, stress is a dilemma in Sweden. That's why. Okay yeah Um, in the united states it's the number one uh, workers compensation claim so it used to be the bricks were falling on people's hands or they were falling off of roofs but now it's this phenomenon that is really representative of the crazy pace of our lives Uh, the 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 poverty of management that we have because you know people leave jobs not because of bad compensation they leave because of bad management Mm. so the tools that we're bringing uh, to people are in that uh, framework, and some people in in the world of compassion would say, "Oh, you know, the world of business is maybe beneath us, or you know, we need to focus on uh, kind of actualizing ourselves out of those circumstances." But you know, humans are extremely complex, and to focus on just the the good mm, doesn't give us the opportunity to really address the bad. <laughs> so we we try to. You know, address uh, the full complexity. Not the full complexity. I don't know if anybody's going to be able to do that anytime soon. But as much of the complexity as our expertise uh, will allow us to.
0: And then it will spread over to other people and so on. So it's uh, it's really great.
2: In the field of maybe compassion interventions, uh, you'll oftentimes find folks who are very um, dogmatic about approaches. There's, there's one right way. And, you know, when I think about how much we change over the course of our lives developmentally and how our needs change very rapidly, um, I would I would argue that, you know, at first when I started thinking about using artificial intelligence to address people's needs in these areas, I thought, no, you know, come on, we're human beings, we need each other. That's the whole point. But if that's a gateway in moving towards more effective Uh, Tools or interventions, then yeah, we need to have as many doors as we can. So, you know, I work with people who are doing text based interventions. They're brilliant. I don't think it's the end all be all. I think, again, at some point in time, someone might be scared to reach out to another human being, even if it's just on a video screen like, uh, you know, on Zoom or Skype. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I think that it's okay for us to explore all these venues because we're not all the same and we're gonna need to have different doors and different points in time, different solutions are going to appeal to us. I'm too busy right now to have a practice. I don't practice yoga. I don't practice qigong. I don't have any practice besides freaking out about my work. (laughs) Uh, And that's, (laughs) maybe that's not good, but for me, being able to share this stuff gives me great joy and uh, that a a lot of my stress so thank you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Stort tack för att du har lyssnat i dag. Om du vill ha nyhetsbrevet som följer varje veckas avsnitt kommer på lördag morgon så gå in på epiclivingSweden.com och så skriver du upp dig där. Tills vi hörs nästa gång så önskar jag dig en riktigt epic vecka.